notorious murder case in Kansas. I'm Dave Helling with the Star's editorial board. The details next on Deep Background. Well, greetings. You're on Deep Background for December 12th, 13th, somewhere in there. 2019, toward the end of the year, Dave Helling with the stars. What Edit- year is it? <laughs> yeah, really. I need to check the calendar. Uh, and Derek Donovan, my colleague at the Star, joining us for Deep Background today. Derek, great to see you with Hello us. Hello there. And then Melinda Hindenberger, who is on the editorial board. Again, my colleague, our colleague, uh, writing opinion for the newspaper. And she is here today to talk about really a disturbing, concerning story that she wrote uh, for the paper about a notorious murder case in right. Lawrence, correct, involving a young woman and an older man, and the circumstances of the of that incident, but also the way the judicial system treated her right. after the incident. So, give us the sort of the background on it, Melinda. Who? What's the name of the victim, and so, what what happened? Well, there are a couple victims in this scenario, although that has not been widely recognized, at least until now. So in January of 2014, a 19-year-old woman named Sarah Gonzalez McGlynn uh, was arrested for uh, almost decapitating what they very blandly referred to as her 52-year-old housemate who really had, uh, Hal Sasko, who really had essentially been holding her in sexual slavery and financial slavery for a couple of years. She had moved in with him when she was 17 years old. She'd gone to work for him. He owned several CC's Pizza restaurants in Topeka and Lawrence. She'd gone to work for him at one of those restaurants when she was 15. And the crime was very, very grisly. She, they found her asleep in his car. A park ranger found her in the Florida Everglades. And the coverage and um, just the whole conception of what had happened was this was an ungrateful teenage troubled teen who this nice man allowed to move in with them and look what happens and there was really in her trial very little attention paid to the situ- her situation and the prosecution the Douglas County DA Charles Branson tried the case himself and he painted her as doing this for fun that's literally what he said that she um, did it that she um, used a knife instead of a gun to more fully enjoy the experience and uh, of having the blood all over herself um, that she really because when she was arrested she said she did it to see what it would feel like yeah. no understanding that she's psychotic at the time no understanding that of the abuse she had been through and this is a young woman who'd already been sexually abused as a child, raped in high school. Uh, This is a girl with a lot of trauma. And her own lawyer, a very well-known and well-compensated lawyer, Carl Cornwell, um, 
really just kind of walked down this path of what used to be an insanity defense, which for the, since 1996 really doesn't even exist in Kansas. So he kind of gets lost in the weeds of disassociative DID, what we used to call um, multiple personality disorder, and that it wasn't really Sarah who did the crime. It was her alter, Alyssa. And he admits he's totally perplexed by this whole theory himself. The jury did not buy it, and she got 50 years for killing this man. All right, so, let's, let's break this up a little bit so yeah. we can talk about it before the trial, before the sentence. But give us some sense, if you can, Melinda. I remember when this story broke how we all thought it was weird that this man and this woman were living together. Was it some... Do we have a sense of how that happened? I mean, was it... How they uh, moved in Yeah, I mean, I think that some people tried to sell it as sort of a normal thing, and I think most of us were going, well, this can't can't Mm -hmm. be normal in any way. And then I think there was a theory that Sasko suddenly or somehow was being kind to these women and they needed a place to stay and they were homeless and he took them in. And that's not what what you found, is it? That was the story. No, not at all. So as I said, she had a very, she had a history of abuse. And so he really preyed on that. And her, uh, she had... Uh, been hospitalized after a suicide attempt. She was super vulnerable, and, and needed help, her, and needed serious help, medical help, right, right, and not to be preyed on again. So he sees this, and um, he started trying to get her to move in with them when she was 16. She finally did as soon as she graduated early from high school when she was 17. He sought cosmetic she, surgery, is that right? Yeah, but For, so he sold this to her as I'm this great Christian man who's going to rescue you. I'm going to save you, you save you from your terrible broken home after this terrible divorce that you're mad about that your parents have been through. Right. So, uh, you know, and this of course causes a lot more friction even between Sarah and her mother, Michelle Gonzalez, who was saying, I, I don't buy this Christian routine. You can't move in with this then 50 year old man. Right. Uh, and then as soon as she moves in with them, not as soon as, but soon after, he starts coercing her sexually and a, a lot of bad things happen. Yeah. Um, the mother did try to stop this relationship. Yes. Was there any other intervention that we know about? I mean, it does. I think he, a lot of people hear these stories and think, "Gosh, wasn't someone investigating, or right. didn't someone understand it?" No. But, but no, the answer he seems told, to be no. He told everyone she was his stepdaughter, and she went into the situation thinking of him as a father figure. Which is again, and a protective figure in yes, some ways. Yes, but then he convinced her, and again, she's not thinking clearly that she can't go back home because no one wants her at home because she's rejected them. They don't want her back. Then he's pushing her into cosmetic surgery. He pushes her to have he. She she said that he saw her as his personal Barbie doll, and that he. He wanted her to have implants in her buttocks, which she very much did not want to have, so that he could have a curvier Barbie yeah. to yeah. play do we, with. Do we now go ahead, Derek? Do, doesn't a lot of this speak to 
these caricatures we sort of have about how sexual violence works these days. We've been talking about you know false rape supposedly at, in Lawrence, right. and people seem to have this conception that when somebody's raped, it's a single violent act, and that you know you either go and report it or it didn't happen. Right. But isn't this kind of the poster child example of how incredibly complicated a lot of these relationships are that end up th that we see in retrospect obviously are abusive relationships, right? Yes, I hope that we see in in retrospect that this was an abusive relationship. This I should have said before, you know, there's going to be a hearing next week on whether she had adequate counsel from her lawyer and who according to Sarah and her current lawyer and her family and there's a lot of evidence to show this from the trial transcript and from court documents he never passed on a an offer of a plea for 25 years which is a you know she could have had a chance at parole when she was 45 years old versus when she's 70 she's how I mean, old now she's 25 I mean that's a lifetime of difference and and he, according to the family, um, just said, no, I've got this. I'm going to win this. We're going to win this young lady. Um, and when, the, when Branson, the DA, made the offer of the plea deal of only 25 years instead of 50, he immediately answered no. And we know that because Branson put that in a letter and said, I know you oppose this because you said immediately she'll have to get a new lawyer if she wants to take this plea deal. But I trust that you will pass on the plea offer to Sarah. And that's the basis of the appeal. And that's one of the basis of, of the appeal. appeal. Let's go back a little bit to the circumstances because I do want to deal with the trial, which I thought was fascinating, but uh, equally fascinating. But do we know, uh, Melinda, what the triggering event was for the murder? I mean, was there some dispute? Was there some, you know, was there something that happened that day or was it a, just a reaction to, to repeated abuses in the home? That's a good question. I don't think there, well, I mean, she it's may have no just snapped. One, it's no one thing, and I, I mean, there's no she evidence seems that, to have been yeah. completely psychotic, but, you know, what threw her into that? She was on a new medication, Pristique, which has um, apparently, for some people, had the effect of taking, replacing depression with rage. So she had just changed medication. Uh, I don't think there was any precipitating event that I know of between the two of them other than that she felt that she needed to escape and that if you believe the theory that she has DID multiple personalities that one of the personalities was planning suicide and the other one said you know to save to save us uh, I'm, you know, we're going to have to do away with. All right. Well, so, so let's now then turn to the trial. I tell you what, let's take a break. We'll come back to the trial. You're listening to Deep Background. Hey there, this is Derek Donovan of the Kansas City Star Editorial Board, and we hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you like what you hear, help us support this podcast and the journalism that reporters at the Star do every day by subscribing. There's an easy way for you to do it. Head to kansascity.com slash background. 
you'll even get a special discount just for being a deep background listener. By subscribing at that URL, you will get three months of unlimited digital access to the star for $1.99 total. That's right, you get access to KansasCity.com, the e-edition of the newspaper, our mobile apps, and more for three whole months, and it only costs you $1.99. That's a pretty sweet deal. Plus, you will be supporting journalism that makes a difference in Kansas City. So, go grab your computer or mobile device and head to KansasCity.com slash background. And hey, thanks for listening. Back now with Melinda Hannenberger of the Stars Editorial Board and Derek Donovan of the Board and Dave Helling with the Stars Editorial Board. So let's turn to the trial. Mm-hmm. Did any of this come up? I mean, this seems like a, a, an avenue of defense, all of these things that you discovered, Melinda and Rhoda. What's odd is it came up, but it, yet it was not a focus. The focus of the trial was this woman has DID, multiple personalities, and so she could not have formed intent. Under current Kansas law, really you cannot be found not guilty by reason of uh, mental disease or defect unless you were incapable of forming intent. So it really all came down to that. And that's what the focus was on all these alters, all these personalities. And yes, her, you know, five, it, the, the trial was less than five years ago, but that was kind of a different time. I mean, the focus, as odd as it seems, was really not on what her life was like with him. And there was no, um, the, the DA obviously didn't believe, he said at the trial, that he didn't think she had been abused as a child or raped in high school, even though... There's a lot of evidence to the contrary. Yeah, but uh, you get the sense though that, um, and I think I got this sense from reading your story. Uh, tell me if I've missed this: that the grisliness of the murder played a role yes. here. That it was such a, yes. you know, it was a decapitation, and there was blood, mm-hmm. and there was that. That was a potentially, anyway, a distracting factor for the jury, looking at the other facts involved in this case, and made it tougher on her. Well, I think. You know, insanity is almost impossible. In fact, the Supreme Court is looking now at whether it's the Kansas um, standard for proving insanity is so difficult that it may be unconstitutional. We're going to get a ruling on that in this coming year. So um, I, I... that was the whole focus. It just wasn't on how she was treated or, um, you know, there is also something called the battered woman syndrome defense, which expands the idea of self-defense for people in abusive relationships. And that was not pursued, which which was a mistake. And there were other mistakes made. He didn't um, ask the court to tell the jury about lesser included charges. This is Carl Cornwall, the the defense attorney in this case. Yes. But but so on both sides, it just was so troubling that she was treated as she's really in servitude and she's treated as this evil person who... even aside from criminalizing mental illness, which she obviously has, as this person who did this for kicks. And I remember at the time, there was a lot of 
conversation about whether she was a sympathetic character on trial or not. And I always, I remembered having this disconnect saying, well, she's a 19-year-old with a 51-year-old or whatever the age differences were at the time. And that seemed like an odd question to ask about somebody. And just let me add to that. My own recollection at the time was, this is sort of obviously wrong. How can this be? And I remember we were all thinking, yeah, yeah. That, that is he taking in employees from the pizza parlor? And it, and yet I think what you're describing is that all of those questions were more or less waved away they were. because of, again, maybe the, the grisliness of the murder. They did not murder. see past the blood and the guts. He, and the coverage didn't either. The coverage really never got past the blood and the guts. I mean, nobody was saying, hey, how right. did this even, how is this even conceivable? Right. And, and that was the failure here, or the alleged and failure. And her family says that they very much always wanted to tell her story and tell her side of it and that their lawyer convinced them that that would be a terrible idea. Yeah. So he was the only one who talked to reporters, and he really, with reporters, concentrated on what he was learning about this mental illness. Yeah. Did, did, but was the, did, did your story say, again, my record, it, it, that the family was willing to consider a 25-year sentence or that the defendant they thought never, about it? They never knew about it. Yeah. They were just told, this isn't happening because we're, I'm going to get you off. According to her family, Carl Cornwell, their lawyer, used the word promise. I promise you, yeah. I'll, I, you know. And the family gonna, did invest some money to try and hire a decent lawyer, and yes, Carl's well known yes, in the legal community. Yes, more than community. forty thousand dollars. Yeah, apparently. yeah, but 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 so, but I'm trying to get a sense as to whether the plea agreement, in retrospect, was the better path oh, for her, yes, as opposed my, to. I mean, that would have been a shot at life. Yeah, you know. I, I because I got the sense it's a from big mistake for yeah. them to have not well, if he didn't the Supreme Court it's very difficult to prove inadequate count representation of counsel right like you can have a lawyer who's asleep who's drunk who's demented who's dying right. literally and you don't necessarily I just get finished a, trial. a big public defender but, series <laughs> but the Supreme Court in a case in 2012 actually out of Missouri said that you your attorney does have to uh, pass on a formal plea deal. Yeah. And so if that didn't happen, if her current lawyer and her family is correct that that didn't happen, then she could potentially get a new trial. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's going to be interesting to see at this hearing what Carl Cornwell says because it seems that the, um, the state... Branson's office believes that he's going to testify that he did pass on the plea agreement, and her uh, Sarah McGlynn's current lawyer, Jonathan Sternberg, says in his pleading that Carl Cornwell will say just the opposite, that he did not pass on the plea agreement. Right, right. So a lot could come down to the testimony of the person who I don't think did a good job for her to begin yeah. with. Also relevant to that, what is Michelle's state of mind like these days? Where where is she? Michelle, the mom, or Sarah? Sarah. The, or Sarah. Uh, Sarah. Sorry, yeah. um, I 
that's impossible for me to say with I'm, what her family says is that she's nervous she's going to finally get her chance apparently to testify at this hearing she's this may be her last chance and she's so she's scared she on the other hand has also told her mother that she feels safer now than she did when she lived with Al Sasco. You just got you have to wonder in the intervening years if fog has lifted and you know she you know she doesn't get any um, therapy, which is astonishing given that even the prosecution, even the uh, psychiatrist for the prosecution, listed all the you know she has bipolar schizophrenia major depression ptsd uh and so she's not getting treated for any of that her mother told me you know i never push her to examine too closely everything that's happened because who's going to be there to pick up the pieces when you know when we open that box in the in the rehearing next week Obviously, the defendant, Sarah, is seeking a new trial, correct? Right. She wants a new trial. Would she then argue innocence, or is this an idea that we need to reduce the sentence, that there is some culpability, but it's not a 50-year sentence, or do we have a sense of that at I, all? I don't know where the, the issue right now is, will she, get a new will trial. she perhaps get a new trial on the basis that her lawyer didn't adequately represent her whether then they would what would what they would plead then i do not know yeah Uh, that's why i was asking about the plea agreement and whether it was communicated which this case apparently that to me is the biggest deal because it's interesting to know whether in essence the defendant and the family said and you know is thinking well she did something she deserves some punishment just not this punishment or if the circumstances were so horrific that she should be set free. What her mother says, and her mother, interestingly, is married to a police officer in Topeka where Sarah is in prison and where Sarah grew up. So she says that I, you know, I always thought she should and would do time, but not the rest of her life given all the circumstances. But her mother's not a lawyer. I don't, I mean, someone in that situation, I guess what I would argue was she should be in treatment, not in prison. And she should deserve, regardless, the full representation that Absolutely. any defendant should have, Absolutely. which we've talked about a lot. And that's a kind of a way to wrap up our conversation, Melinda, which is what lessons can we learn from this incident? Obviously, I think most Americans have this TV view of justice, right. <laughs> which is the bad guys always get caught and the lawyers right. are always brilliant in the end and the judges are judges and never make mistakes, unless it's part of the plot, I guess. But justice is so messy in our system, Mm. and it depends on who the prosecutor is and what discretion he or she uses or how the defense, you know, presents its case and whether the judge recognizes, you know, maladministration of justice or not. That seems to be a big lesson from this case. That it's just, you know, it was the right thing. You know, let's just be honest. You know, how Sasko's family has some role in this too, but... But you just wonder, when you, when I read it, this is another example of justice being just a messy, imperfect instrument. Yeah, that's for sure. Well, Sasko was a victim, too. I mean, that's obvious. You know, that doesn't make it okay to almost cut someone's head off, and I don't think anyone is saying that. Right. 
but there was just no understanding of her victimization. There, she was treated from start to finish like this evil person, you know, which is just wrong because of the abuse she was suffering, and it's wrong because of her mental illness. And that's, uh, you know, again, not just limited to this case. I mean, right. we don't, this isn't an aberration. This may happen in courtrooms every day. And do make sure you go to our description uh, of the podcast here. We will link to Melinda Henneberger's column about Sarah Gonzalez McLean, and you have to read it for yourself. It's right. Really and then obviously, and then obviously after that, whatever happens in this, in this motion for a retrial, we'll have that, we'll have that as well. All right, Melinda Henneberger, thank, thank you, you so much. much. A very interesting, compelling, disturbing stories, a story in many ways. And, um, you know, I think many people and many readers in the Kansas City area will remember the initial incident, but maybe didn't follow the actual outcome of the trial. Right. And so your story was so important in that way. Derek Donovan, thanks again from the editorial board for joining us. And I've been Dave Helling. I am Dave Helling. <laughs> and you have been on Deep Background. Thanks. 